Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm really excited to learn from both of you today. So let's jump right in. Can you each please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. We both are. I really, we really appreciate this invitation. Uh, I'm Dr. Katie Hosbein. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a white, cis, hetero, neurodivergent woman. Uh, Paulette and I are both discipline-based education researchers, which means that we're experts in a specific STEM discipline, uh, but study education within that context. So in both of our cases, we're chemists who study chemistry education, uh, but sometimes we incorporate other disciplines. So for example, Paulette is currently housed in the physics department and our current study that we'll be discussing today focuses more broadly on STEM than chemistry in particular. Um, I have a master's with a focus on analytical chemistry and a PhD with a focus on chemistry education, both from Portland State University. I came to the University of Michigan after my first postdoctoral position in chemistry at East Carolina University where I worked with Dr. Joy Walker. And I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow in the chemistry department uh, here at University of Michigan working with Dr. Ginger Schultz. I am Dr. Paulette Vincent Roos. My pronouns are she, Asia. I identify as a queer Latinx woman of color. I was born and raised a settler colonialist in the rightful lands of the Michigan tribes. And as a Mexican immigrant, uh, English is my second language. And that's why you hear that I have an accent when I speak. I have a PhD in learning sciences and policy from the University of Pittsburgh, where I developed my research program on science education and chemistry education research. And then I came here to work with Dr. Tim McKay, who's Associate Dean of Undergraduate uh, Students at the University of Michigan. And I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow in the physics department, even though I do chemistry education research. It's just I'm housed in a different place. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for diving in and sharing all of that really exciting information. I'm really glad to get to know each of you. Can you describe your work as postdoctoral research fellows at U of M and what that's like? So as I mentioned, I, doctor, I work with Dr. Tim McKay uh, and I work as part of two projects. The first one is called the Seismic Project, which is a consortium of different institutions across the United States. There are public research institutions and, and the objective is to help support transformations in uh, undergraduate education, specifically the first year courses, uh, because we know that is where we find a lot of um, struggles for students and a lot of barriers for students for success. So that is one part of my job. The other part of my job is part of the eCoach project, which is housed in academic innovation at the University of Michigan. And that is a platform that some of you may be familiar with, which is uh, a platform that not only helps students um, keep track of everything that's going through the class, but we also allows us to do some uh, interesting uh, research about what motivates students, what not just students to behave in different ways. Uh, so it's been a very interesting um, journey to be here, uh, doing more environment, like learning environment level work. Um, so I've learned a lot through the process. So I work with Dr. Ginger Schultz in the chemistry department. I've been here um, since July. And so I'm just getting started on a couple of projects, but I'm involved in two research projects that take place in rural Northern Alaska. 
um, involving partnering with teachers to bring more culturally relevant activities into their classrooms. Uh, and this research is incredibly important in tying traditional and local knowledge from indigenous communities in Alaska into the classroom through teachers who are mostly from the lower 48. He recently received a grant from the National Center for Institutional Diversity's Anti-Racism Collaborative for a current project that supports border crossing for marginalized STEM graduate students through mentorship. I'm so excited to talk to you about this and learn more about this project. So could you please expand on it and share your goals and how your work will impact and assist graduate students? Yeah, we're incredibly excited to get started on this project. Um, you know, we've known for a long time that racially marginalized students leave STEM at a disproportionate rate, and various fields have been working on this issue for decades, um, but we still have a long way to go. And so our study focuses on two areas that have been shown to support the persistence of racially marginalized students, these being science identity and supportive mentorship. And so science identity is the extent to which someone sees themselves as a science person. Um, but in this particular study, we're focused on STEM identity. So in other words, the identity of graduate students in their, in their particular discipline. Um, for, so for example, if we're talking to a chemistry graduate student, we would ask them about their chemistry identity. And we're doing this because we expect at this stage that students will be forming an identity based on the norms and practices of their specific discipline rather than science in a more general sense. And in this project, we want to understand the experiences of racially marginalized graduate students, how their STEM identity has developed in graduate school, and the contributions that their mentor has had in this development. Uh, we'll be specifically working with graduate students who report that their race or ethnicity is central to their identity, and asking how this identity has coexisted with their STEM identity throughout graduate school, and if and how their mentor has helped or hindered their experiences with border crossing, which put simply is the navigation between these two identities. We'll also be asking if other social identities are central to the students' identities, such as gender and sexuality, to note intersectional experiences. But overall, we want our work to inform ways that we can change the system of graduate school in STEM. And one way of doing this is training mentors to mentor their racially marginalized graduate students in a way that fosters a positive STEM identity. And so we're partnering with Rackham's Faculty Committee on Mentoring, and they provide mentoring workshops for fa the faculty at, at the university. And so they're, in they're interested in our findings and how they could be used to modify workshops provided at the university. So this is the first step uh, in investigating specifically how mentors influence the navigation between racial identity and STEM identity for racially marginalized graduate students in particular. Yes, and I just wanna add that, um, so currently the way we're, people are looking at mentorship, most people, I'm not gonna say everybody, because Dr. Brenda Montgomery is one of the few people that actually is looking at this from an equity perspective and centralizing the, the experiences of marginalized students, is that when you look at current recommendations by um, AAAS or any other scientific, big scientific organization in the United States, uh, they usually will have, oh, these are good mentoring practices. And then they will have us on a side right? Oh, there's this reading about supporting people that are not white and male and cis, right? Basically, that is the crux of it. But it's currently very disconnected, right? Uh, and so the problem is that people are not disconnecting their identities when they come into laboratories to do research, right? They're, they come with their full selves. And so having this information always seen as a separate thing, like almost like an atom, like an app that you download in your phone if you want it or not, 
is very problematic, right? Um, and so what we want to do is to really think about how we can do this and provide information for mentors that always puts all these things together, right? And it doesn't separate uh, the experiences of students as um, racialized beings uh, from anything else that is going on in their science. Can you describe the importance and or the implications of highlighting settler expectations of STEM identities and looking for ways that students engage in or are supported by their, their mentors in the border crossing? So border crossing is originally a trend coined by Gloria Anzaldúa, who was a Mexican-American uh, philosopher that lived on the border between Mexico and the United States. And the way she talked about border crossing was really just about talking about her own identity as a, as a Mexican-American woman and how she felt this tension between the American and the Mexican culture. Uh, and so she would say that a borderland is a big and undetermined place created by this emotional residue of an unnatural boundary. And it is in a constant state of transition. And so basically what she was trying to say is, the natural boundary is having to have her mixing in her American uh, identities as separate. Okay, so then people took that concept and moved it into political science and they talk a lot about immigration and identity of immigrants and all this stuff. But what is relevant to us is when it was brought in to uh, science education, um, deeper research or anything that has to do with this, um, Dr. Megan Bang at Northwestern University started using it to understand how indigenous ways of knowing and Eurocentric ways of knowing were clashing and how can she support uh, indigenous students engagement with science, right? Without needing to leave their ways, indigenous ways of knowing behind. What Katie and I are doing are extending this concept, right? And saying, okay, now let's not only think about this in, in terms of like knowledge production, but also of identity construction, right? And so what happens is the settler expectations are what we think a scientist should be, right? And this is often a very um, sees white male's perspective, right? Even though that the makeup of science has changed a little, uh, we're still are expected to have certain behaviors, right? Um, there's some research that shows that, for example, uh, the fields with less cis women in them are the ones that have uh, still believe that uh, being genius is like an innate trait with them, right? And so we're still carrying a lot of these beliefs about you need to be naturally gifted to this. You need to behave uh, very assertively. Um, you need to be super objective. I don't know, like there's many things we're carrying still about what a scientist should be and shouldn't be, right? And, and what's happening is when you're marginalized, a lot of your identities clash with these perceptions, right? And so you're constantly being like, I'm asked to leave behind this in order to become this other thing, right? And there, there's a tension on it. And so the importance of highlighting the status quo is because we're centralizing the tension we're putting on marginalized students to change. And, and really what we're trying to say is, this is not about making students change to fit this box that we have created. This is about we showing you why this box is harmful, is hurting students' development, it's not allowing them to be their full selves, and why expanding the meanings of this box matters, and how an advisor can like say, you know, all these ideas that we have are false, and this is how I'm gonna help you like break with these notions. 
right? And so, so I wanna be very clear that this is not about us helping students assimilate into science, right? We're focusing on the status quo to first highlight how we're hurting marginalized students on it. Um, and then we can figure out ways to support mentors to break with this tension. So for example, as a bilingual person, uh, I'm expected to always have my English on point, right? 100% of the time, I always have to speak perfect academic English, right? When I'm presenting, when I'm in a meeting, when I'm writing a paper, right? And so some, I think that many people like me have suffered is that when we get a paper review back, people will make comments about, it is very obvious you're not a native English speaker. Uh, you should get help, right? Which is something pretty offensive to hear, especially in, from, from a review, right? Or we're, set, we're told you should not use Spanish words when you're presenting, even if it comes naturally to you to sometimes say something in Spanish, right? So we're constantly asked to be this adaptation to the system, right? And so what we're instead saying is, what if we allow scientists to sometimes say words in their language, right? And just provide the context of it while they're presenting. Their presentations might be even more engaging and they will feel less, more relaxed when doing them, right? All this sort of things. What if instead of being like, oh, you don't speak perfect English. I, I want you to be perfect at grammar <laughs> when writing a paper pay us as an editorial $5,000 for us to edit your paper. We actually think about more uh, equitable ways of supporting this type of communication. So I'm not saying communication is not important and clear communication is not important. What I'm saying is we're still putting the onus on the person that doesn't have the power or the money of their resources to do this, right? Uh, and so instead of seeing this as not being professional, right? Um, we need to start seeing it as just like, this is who they are, scientists. They're gonna be bilingual scientists. They're gonna move everywhere as bilingual scientists, right? And this is a very simple example, right? But it can be applied to many things. It can be applied to how you dress, how you wear your hair. We know black women are policed a lot about how they, how they have their hair, right? And so they're expected to have it like straight in or like for, in order to look professional, right? And that is just, like that doesn't affect how you do science, right? Like what is how your hair looks like matter. Um, and so all of these kinds of things, these tiny things try to accumulate and just make you feel all the time like you're thinking about science. And on top of that, I need to think about being professional and dressing professional and speaking English and never fit. Like it just becomes exhausting, right? Um, so that is just one example. That was such a superb explanation for someone who is not as familiar with the intricate details of the work and why it's necessary. Um, so thank you for not only that incredible explanation, but also for giving an example that I think a lot of individuals can at one level or another relate to having one of those expectations um, placed upon them. So how can mentors influence the development of STEM identity in racially marginalized graduate students? So in our discussion, we've mentioned that there is research supporting that mentorship is important in racially marginalized students' persistence through a STEM degree. And there's a lot of research supporting that through undergraduate. There's also a lot of research that supports um, science identity as something that can aid in the persistence of marginalized students in undergraduate. 
but there is a lack of research in the area where describing the specific influences that faculty mentors have on the development of science identity. And so that's what, your question is exactly what our study aims to show. And I mentioned too, that there's a lot of support for these things to um, help students in undergraduate, but there's less research that shows this in graduate school. And then we're really trying to tie the two together to say, how can your mentor actually influence your science identity? Um, Because we know that they can, there are studies that show that they can, but we don't know exactly how. And that's what we're trying to get at is these really in-depth experiences of specific things that that the mentor does or says that influences this development of STEM identity. And then I did wanna add uh, mentorship relationships may play an incredibly important role for racially marginalized students because they oftentimes have less access to networks of mentors. So there's this weight on this faculty mentor relationship because they may be only relying on this faculty mentor relationship to introduce them to science and their their specific disciplines and the norms and practices. And so if this mentor is introducing them to norms and practices that directly conflict with their racial identity, this can be a huge issue. And so this relationship is a really important relationship to focus on to understand exactly how it can influence their development of STEM identity. How will the anti-racism collaborative's contributions support your research objectives? So I think there's two important things that uh, I want to mention about. I think having NCID backing us up gives us a great platform within the university, right? Because we have an organization that is focused on, on this type of work, giving us like a check saying like, they're doing good work, you should work with them. Like, and I think it, it helps us open doors in the university that we may not be able to get usually as postdocs. Uh, because we're not faculty members, right? And we have not been here at University of Michigan for like forever in order to know everybody, right? So I do think that being able to say, hey, we won this award from NCAD. Hi, uh, let's work together. I do think it opens a lot of doors. But I do want to address a little bit about the financial aspect. Um, Because our work is going to be qualitative, so it's going to rely on interviews with people, Katie and I are aware that we're gonna ask a lot of emotional labor from students, right? So, so when we're studying things like racial identity and how that is affecting your relationship with science, we are potentially asking students to relieve traumatizing things, right? Uh, things that are really hurtful, right? And so it's very important for Katie and I to one, to anybody that we are gonna interview, we're gonna provide a list of resources about like the mental health support the university has in case after having the interview, they need to have a checkup with somebody about how they're feeling, but also to compensate people for their emotional labor, right? Uh, we don't believe in asking for free labor in this case. And I think, um, you know, there's not many things you can do, right? But we can at least give them some money to say, we value that you're telling your story to us. You're, we value that you're trusting us with it. Uh, we're gonna honor it. <laughs> But also here's some compensation for you putting yourself out there and sharing your um your your story with us. Especially because it might be very hard. Students may be worried about like anonymity. Um, they might be worried about like their story getting backtracked to their advisor in case they say something bad about their advisor or their department. And so Katie and I have thought really carefully about all the steps to protect people's identities, to protect their safety, first and foremost, right? 
to compensate them for the emotional labor and to give them supports afterwards the interview. And I do think it's something that sometimes we don't think about enough, but when you're doing this type of work, uh, it matters. The Anti-Racism Collaborative also funded several other projects from a wide range of disciplines. What is it like to be a part of these teams from across disciplines focusing on anti-racist actions to combat structural racism? Uh, first, we're incredibly excited by the, that these grants even exist, um, that the Anti-Racism Collaborative is there. Um, we've never questioned the importance of this project and are so grateful that the university recognized its potential. Um, but second, it's, it's literally unbelievable to be a part of this list. Um, Paulette and I were first, you know, shocked to have the award. And then when we read the list, we kept reading it over and over again because we're the only project that's led by non-faculty. And so we were just stunned that they <laughs> trusted us with this. I mean, we're, we're confident that we can carry it out, but we were just so grateful that they recognized our project and trusted us to, to carry this through. Um, you know, there are even deans on the list. Like we were <laughs> just so shocked. Um, and like we've said, like we're postdocs, so we don't have permanent positions at the University of Michigan. And normally postdocs, they can have grants, but their uh, faculty mentor is connected to it in some way. And so this grant gives Paulette and I an incredibly unique opportunity to lead a project of our own without either of our mentors. And I do have to shout out to both of our mentors, uh, Dr. Tim McKay and Dr. Ginger Schultz, who have been incredible supports throughout this process and like just encouraging us to be independent researchers and get a jump start on our career because this project will follow us to whatever institution that we end up in. And so we're just incredibly grateful. And yeah, like I said, it was like literally unbelievable when we saw that we were awarded this grant. Well, that is incredible to hear and congratulations for receiving the award from NCID's Anti-Racism Collaborative. I've learned so much from both of you today and greatly appreciate the time you took to educate me and our audience. So thank you. Thank you. Thank so you much. for having us. We're so excited. Um, and thank you for helping us share our project with the university. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.